Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast, bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my conversation today is with Abby Saloma, who is the Senior Program Officer for the Schusterman Family Foundation. As part of her role, she oversees the flagship Schusterman Fellowship Program, which is in its third year. And previous to joining the Schusterman Foundation, Abby was Executive Director for Street Sense, which is a DC-based nonprofit, which works to empower the homeless through a newspaper that educates the public about issues of homelessness and poverty. Previous to that she joined the team of BBYO as their Senior Director of Marketing and Communications, where she led a rebranding effort of the 85-year-old organization to make it more relevant to today's teens. And you can read Abby's full bio and more about her work on our website. It's who you know the podcast.com. But I'd love to hear from Abby herself. So welcome so much to the program, Abby. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. Wonderful. So please go ahead and tell us a little bit more about how you got to where you are. I'll start by saying that I did not know that a world of Jewish professionals or organizations existed. I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, a very small Jewish community. I was raised in an interfaith family and I was bat mitzvahed, but my Judaism was not at the forefront of my life. So after undergrad, I worked in the field of marketing and communications. And it wasn't until I was at George Washington University where I was running the marketing and communications department for the graduate school of education and getting my master's degree when I first was exposed to a world of Jewish professionals and organizations. Matt Grossman, who had just become the executive director of BBYO at the time, recruited me to come on board and basically start up the communications operation for BBYO, which had just gone independent. And my initial reaction was, what are you talking about, a Jewish organization? (laughs) And my second reaction was, I don't think a Jewish organization is what I'm looking for professionally. I just had this, you know, perception about the Jewish sector not being as creative or fast-paced as what I was looking for. And Matt's pretty persuasive, so he kept on it. And I eventually went in for an interview so I could tell him that now I've seen it with my own eyes and it's not the right place for me. And I interviewed with him and was completely floored. You know, he was incredibly strategic and creative and I could tell he was a risk taker. And here I was in my, you know, upper 20s being given this opportunity to start up a marketing and communications operation for a Jewish organization that was really in startup mode because it had just gone independent. So that interview really very quickly changed my perception about what Jewish organizations could be and what the Jewish sector could be like. And I took that job and it really changed the trajectory of not only my career, but kind of who I am as a person. Wonderful. So from there, you left BBYO and decided you wanted to try the non-Jewish world. Mm -hmm. How was that experience? Yeah. So I had already been exposed for several years to working outside of the Jewish sector. So after undergrad, I worked in the field of marketing and communications in a for-profit capacity through a few different companies. And after five years at BBYO, I was really just looking for a new challenge. I felt like I was really thriving at BBYO. I had built this marketing and communications operation from the ground up. And 
we had accomplished so much and I was just ready for my next step. And I felt this sense of urgency around the issue of homelessness in DC. You know, I just could not fathom the fact that there were people sleeping on the streets in the nation's capital. And I was a really regular runner at the time. And I would see these homeless individuals, sometimes the same people, you know, day in and day out. And I was just not willing to accept that, you know, I was kind of sitting by and not doing anything about it. So I took this role as, as the ED of Street Sense and I embarked on hands down what was the most professionally challenging experience of my life. I learned a great deal about who I am, who I am as a leader and what young leaders I was, you know, in my in my low 30s at the time and what young leaders need from a leadership development standpoint mm-hmm. to really make an ED role sustainable to be successful in a role like that particularly at an organization that's dealing with an issue like homelessness and poverty. And that's really when my interest in leadership development really took off. And so how long did you serve in that role? I was in that role for one year. So how did you come to the foundation? How'd they find you or you find them? Yeah. So my time at BBYO really exposed me to the Schusterman Family Foundation. So Schusterman was really behind the revitalization of BBYO. When BBYO went independent from B'nai B'rith and Matt Grossman took over, it was really Lynn Schusterman who charged Matt and the organization with becoming relevant to today's teens. So I had been in touch with the foundation since my days at BBYO and we had stayed in touch. And when there was a role with the foundation that they felt was right for me, we made the connection. Wonderful. And how long have you now been at Schusterman? I'm going into my sixth year. So do you ever want to be an ED again? Um, I'll never say never. I, I loved so much about that job. I loved the fact that I could kind of get my hands dirty in all these different aspects of running an organization and the marketing and communications, which is where my background is, but also the fundraising. I actually really enjoyed the fundraising aspects of it because I, I love communicating. I love building relationships. I didn't love the financial management pieces of it so much, but I came to really learn a lot. And I think it's an important area of expertise for people to have, you know, under their belt. But there was so much about that job that I really loved. And in all honesty, it was incredibly, incredibly depleting. And I had never had direct experience working with the homeless population. Mm -hmm. So I often felt like I was kind of floating in the middle of an ocean without much support. It's such a small organization that I ended up doing a lot of direct service to. And I just didn't feel like I had the bandwidth or the capacity to do all of that. And I made a really tough decision at the end of that year to get back into a role where I was both bringing out the best in the role and the role was bringing out the best in me. And I didn't think that was so much the case during my time at Street Sense. And I do very much think that that is the case now in my role here at Schusterman. Great. Well, that's a a wonderful transition into telling us more about your role at the Schusterman Foundation. Yeah. So when I came on board here, like I said, I'm in my sixth year. I started out by running a partnership with Teach for America. And it was such a wonderful re-entry back into the Jewish community because I have somewhat of an interesting story in that when I was born and raised in Reading, Pennsylvania, my parents actually lied about my address to send me to an inner city school. 
So I went to a high school of about 4,000 students, predominantly Black and Hispanic. And my parents were both public school teachers themselves and very much believed in the power of education. And they felt that my best education would come from being surrounded by people who did not look like me. So it was a very formative experience of my life. And being able to come to the Schusterman Family Foundation and have a foot in the education reform space and work around building Jewish leaders was truly a gift. So I did that for about three years. And at that time, the foundation, which had always invested in young leaders, decided to double down on the investment of leaders who would be taking on the senior most leadership roles in the sector. So whereas when I was running the partnership with Teach for America, I was working with a much younger audience. And then my role shifted to focus on those leaders who were either currently leading in the Jewish sector as a professional or those who were leading in the Jewish sector as a lay leader and really helping to build their leadership capacity and enabling them to fully maximize their leadership potential in some of the most critical roles in the sector in the coming years. Awesome. So for those listening who don't no, I'm just going to pull some things off of the the website to talk a little bit more about the foundation and, and some of the things that it does. Uh, so it seems to have, it seems <laughs> from your website, it has three focal points. So as you mentioned, national education initiatives, Jewish community and Israel, and then local initiatives in their community, which is Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so those are the three kind of areas they focus on. And obviously we'll be focusing on the Jewish community and Israel aspect here. And it mentions, you know, the goal of helping to build inclusive Jewish communities, strengthen the state of Israel and repair the world. And part of how this work is accomplished is through partners. It looks like there's 20, 30 <laughs> partners, a whole list of lots of partners, lots of partners. So I'd love to, to talk a little bit about this structure and how, you know, outside of the fellowship, which we'll get into in a minute, how do they select who their partners are? What does it mean to be a partner? How are they funding just specific programs that, in those partnerships? What does the structure look like? So let me back up and give a little bit of a window into the Schusterman Family Foundation. Our foundation is both an operating foundation and a grant-making foundation. So we make grants to organizations and we also operate our own programs. I work on the operating side of the foundation. So I oversee the Schusterman Fellowship and um, we have a whole host of other programs that we run, including the ROI program, as well as the reality program. Our grant-making side is the side of the foundation that works hand-in-hand with the partners that you mentioned. So these are organizations of you know, all shapes and sizes in the Jewish community who are mission aligned with the Schusterman Family Foundation. So focused on building a dynamic, inclusive Jewish future. And those are organizations like BBYO and Keshet and Repair the World and Moisha House. There's um, a whole host of partners like you mentioned. And I think what we do is look for opportunities in the Jewish community to make a significant difference where other people may not be investing in that work or where we see just a real gap. As well as, you know, identifying organizations who are taking risks, being incredibly creative and innovative in the ways that they're reaching young people. 
people. Our North Star is thriving, dynamic, inclusive Jewish future. And we identify areas of opportunity within the Jewish community where we think we will have the greatest impact. Awesome. Thank you. So now we can move on to the work that you do. So you specifically work with the Schusterman Fellowship and another program or specifically with the fellowship? Yeah. So I spend the vast majority of my time on the fellowship. I oversee our leadership initiatives and the fellowship is a really important part of that puzzle. So several years ago, we stepped back and we looked at the leadership development space, both in the Jewish sector, as well as beyond the Jewish sector. And we looked at just that landscape of what was happening in an effort to address what we see as a talent gap in the sector. So there are a lot of people out there that claim the Jewish sector is broken or the talent is mediocre. And we just do not believe that that is the case. We believe that there is exceptional talent, but we need to do a better job recruiting, developing, and retaining that talent to create what we think of as a virtuous cycle. So exceptional talent creating exceptional organizations, which then in turn recruit exceptional talent. And we came up with a handful of strategies to address that gap, to instigate that virtuous cycle. And the Schusterman Fellowship is one of those strategies. And like I said, we just launched our third cohort of fellows. So at this point, we have just under 100 fellows who have experienced or are currently experiencing the fellowship program. Awesome. So what have you learned from your first cohort where you're just launching this program with this idea in your head that we need better training and to help harness the leadership skills of those working in the Jewish community to your third year? You, This is the third time you're doing it. What have you learned between those two different cohorts? I'd like to say that one of the benefits of working for the Schusterman Family Foundation is we get to build the plane while we fly it. So mm-hmm. we're an organization that is highly nimble, can be very flexible, which really allows us to be very creative, to take risks, to iterate. So we're constantly making adjustments to the program. And that might be you know, very little things to very, very big things. We actually just finished up with our first formal evaluation of the program. So we learned a lot there as well. But we've been learning from day one lots of things along the way because our fellows are very open about giving feedback about what's working and what's not. I would say the biggest thing that I've learned, and I feel like I knew this all along, but it's just really been confirmed for me as I work with these fellows, is that leadership development has to be customized. That as human beings, no two leaders are alike. So we each bring our different skill sets, a set of strengths, a set of growth edges, fears, failures, experiences, passions, interests. We bring all of that to the table. So there are wonderful leadership development programs in the Jewish community. There are wonderful leadership development programs outside of the Jewish community. What I feel differentiates this program is that it's highly customized. So it really acknowledges the fact that As human beings, we are all unique, we are all different, and our leadership development needs are completely different from leader to leader. So when you launched, that wasn't something that you necessarily thought would have to be a focus of yours? It definitely was, but it's really been confirmed for me. So it was kind of in the back of my mind when we launched, but now it's like, that is the heart of the program. 
I'll share a few key elements of the program and I'll dig into like what's really customized with our program. So the fellowship begins with a leadership assessment where each leader goes through a 360 degree assessment where they're assessing themselves and then they're getting that same assessment from up to like 10 or even 12 people in their work and their life who have observed them in a leadership role. So armed with all of that intelligence, how do they see themselves compared to how do others see them? They begin to see like, what are their strengths? What are their real growth edges? From there, they're aligned with an executive coach with whom they partner over the entire course of the fellowship program. And those coaching engagements are about providing the fellows with support, but also really pushing the fellows, really challenging them to build upon some of their strengths and address some of their growth edges. The heart of the program is what we call the Customized Leadership Development Plan, or CLDP for short, because you know we have to have acronyms in the Jewish community. Each fellow receives a stipend of funds to pursue leadership development opportunities that are aligned with their specific goals. Hmm. No two CLDPs are alike. So one fellow may do an executive education program at Harvard and study one-on-one with a Jewish scholar to do some really deep Jewish learning. Another fellow might travel to Israel to really deepen their knowledge and awareness of Israel, and they might do a mindful leadership experience. You know, some fellows do one or two experiences, other fellows piece together anywhere from like a half a dozen to 10 experiences. The CLDP is really the heart of the program. And that's where the fellow starts with a blank palette and paints a leadership development path that will help them maximize their leadership potential. We have several in-person gatherings over the course of the fellowship because we're also really working to build a cohort of people who will serve as a strategic network for one another. And then finally, the culmination of the program is what we call an organizational change initiative or OCI for short. The OCI is what we think of as the ultimate stretch project. This is an endeavor that the fellow takes on. It's embedded into the work that they're already doing at the organization where they're working or they're serving in a lay role. And it's over and above their current portfolio. So it's really pushing them to stretch beyond their comfort zone, apply what they've been learning throughout the fellowship while simultaneously creating some kind of change, some kind of impact within the organization. That sounds like a fantastic trajectory and experience for any person, leader, not leader, person in general (laughs) within their career. I kind of have two questions for you on this. Is it organizations that are looking at people in their organization and saying, we want you to do this? Or is it individuals feeling static in their organizations or what are individuals that are coming to you? What are they feeling that they need that they are hoping that the fellowship provides for them? Yeah. Well, the fellowship is a nomination-based program. So we reach out to people who we work in partnership across the Jewish sector to identify people who are primed to take on some of these critical roles in the sector in the coming years. And we then invite a subset of those nominees to ultimately apply. We're really looking for individuals who have a proven track record of leadership 
and they have significant potential to grow. I think our sweet spot is people who are like doing really, really great work right now and know that they can contribute so much more to the sector in the future. Mm-hmm. So it, sometimes it will come with, from the fellow going to the organization and say, hey, this is a great opportunity I'd love to explore. And sometimes it's the organization coming to the person and say, hey, there's a really great thing we really would like to nominate you for. Yeah, I think now that we're in our third year, the fellowship is a known brand, whereas three years ago, that wasn't the case. So we certainly have you know fellows who have identified the opportunity. But like I said, it is a nomination-based program. So we are partnered with people across the sector who kind of have their tentacles out in the sector and are are identifying people who would be a good fit for the program. Wonderful. So I know that the Schusterman Foundation does a bunch of different programs with different focuses, as you mentioned, on the operational side. And I wonder from your perspective, you mentioned that there are a lot of other sort of leadership development fellowships out there. So the question really is about elitism in the Jewish community, right? So you have this program that requires nomination and is a selects people. So even if you're nominated, you're not necessarily in this program. You mm-hmm. get a very specialized training, very specialized understanding of your leadership skills, where you should go. You end up with some kind of project or your organization that you can walk away with saying that you did, you know, similar to the kind of work you were able to do at BBOIO, you know, walk away and say, I did this, you know, rebranding of this very old organization and left them with this, you know, amazing thing look how great I am. Um, (laughs) I said that, not you. There is a sense, as far as I can see, that these fellowships and these programs set people apart. And although, you know, obviously leadership training is a great thing, you know, if I'm going for a job next to somebody who's done this fellowship, and I might, I, anybody might have similar skills or similar ability, you know, this then gives that person who went through this fellowship or any sort of leadership training, obviously a leg up in that process. So for those who might not have the time, the money, you know, or that nobody's seeing them, how do we sort of look at these fellowships and not begin to create an elitist Jewish professional group that then leaves out, you know, everybody else who wasn't accepted, wasn't nominated, didn't have these same opportunities that you are affording to a very specific group of people every year? It's a great question. And one of the things that we are trying to do with the fellowship is really tap our fellows as our most important nominators. So we have fellows who are lay leaders. We have fellows who are professionals. We have fellows in the United States. We have fellows all over the world. We have fellows in the LGBT community. We have fellows who are a little bit earlier on in their trajectory, as well as people who are a little bit more advanced along their career. So we're really looking to our fellows to help us look beyond the usual suspects and identify people who are ripe for this leadership development experience. And we hope that that approach will enable us to identify some of these people who may not have an experience like this otherwise. So your solution to kind of this possible elitism that the fellowship creates is just you know, we're going to keep doing this and every year there's going to be more and more people that come in. And the best way that we can sort of address this is just continue to allow access. And, you know, maybe if somebody wasn't accepted the year before, they have an opportunity to be renominated. Is that also the case? We've definitely had fellows who have not been accepted the first time around and who do some 
like additional development in the next year. They just like focus on something that may have come up in the interview process that they need to work on. And they focus on that and they come back the next year, just stronger and in a better position to communicate why the fellowship is right for them. So we have definitely had people who have been rejected the first time and then reapply and get included in the fellowship. The one other thing that I'll say is I think we do something that is pretty unique and that is we offer feedback to folks who do not get accepted into the program. So rather than just saying, thank you for, thank you for applying, you know, I'm sorry, you've not been accepted. We offer a one-on-one phone call to talk through the application process, what stood out and what might have held them back. And our hope is that that feedback will certainly be helpful if they choose to reapply, if that's something that makes sense on both parts, but hopefully that's helpful information as they move forward along their leadership trajectory. And do you ever reference out to other fellowships? Absolutely. Yeah, we absolutely do. In addition to providing feedback when it makes sense, we try to encourage them to explore other opportunities that feel like a better fit. You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Timeless Ketubah. If you haven't had a chance to see their truly unique sculpture ketubahs, I encourage you to go to their website, timelessketubah.com. Before returning to my conversation with Abby Saloma, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Mark Gervis who discusses with me his position as the Executive Vice President at the Jewish Federations of North America. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. I was just really lucky early in my life to learn that there were people who get to do this kind of work as a career. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, And I discovered that because, frankly, really my involvement in Hillel and through that got exposed to the fact that there were people in the Hillel movement or at federations who had these kinds of jobs. And, you know, that just totally connected for me. And that's what's animated me for over 30 years now to continue doing the same kind of work. To me, the opportunity to wed my avocation with my vocation has really truly been a blessing that I think has kept me fresh and focused in my work. The world's getting a whole lot more complicated. The work is not easier. (laughs) It's getting tougher. But I think it's filled with meaning and purpose as much today as it was when I started. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Mark Jervis in our next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Abby. So I know you mentioned that the program just went through an evaluation. How do you guys know you're going to be successful? So your goal is to help create leaders that make our Jewish organizations in such a way that when Abby from her 20s looks at the Jewish community and says, I don't really know, they're kind of lame. Seems like the goal, right, is to make it say, wow, the Jewish community is so dynamic and they have these amazing leaders and it's a place I really want to work and be engaged with. You know, you're only in your third year, so you only have so much data to really draw. What are your measures for success? How do you see when this program of very intense leadership development is right, is the best way to help the leaders in the Jewish community get to a place where they're now in positions of being CEO, being ED, leading these organizations, and really making them what will be sustainable for the next 20, 30, 40, 80 years. 
Yeah, it's a great question. And like you said, it's really early on. So we're not able to, you know, assess any long-term impact at this point. Certainly some things that we're looking at initially are fellow satisfaction with the program, what components of the program really worked for them, what components of the program need to be improved, how did the cohort that we're building or the network, how has it served them thus far? How do they foresee it serving them in the future? We got lots of you know great data there. And we're starting to look at things like, are the fellows taking on increased responsibility at their organizations? And we were really excited about the initial data around that. 94% of fellows who are serving in a professional role during the fellowship, as opposed to a lay role, reported an increase in their professional responsibilities. of professional fellows received a formal promotion, two of which went to the C-suite, and 80% of lay fellows, so fellows who were serving in a volunteer role while they were in the fellowship, experienced an increase in their lay leadership responsibilities. So that's some really promising data pretty early on in the program. So we'll certainly continue to track that as we go. You know, at the end of the day, our hope is that organizations have an easier time recruiting, that people who have been through the fellowship program, that they're leading, you know, stronger organizations and that retention statistics start increasing. So, you know, we we need a few more years under our belt to see how that is all playing out. But the initial data that we have is very promising. That's great. And I love the design of the program that it's really focused on the organization the person is currently in and the growing of the responsibilities and uh, growing within an organization. I think sometimes there's a sense that you have to go out to go up. And especially the fact that the Jewish community has a lot of very small organizations, you know, that's the sense you look around and you say, well, where am I going to go from here? Right. And your fellowship offers that path of, well, this is where you can go from there. And it's not necessarily that you're going to fill somebody else's role, but that there's a way to expand your current role that allows for for you to be more satisfied in that work, for you to be able to give back more to that organization and grow it, as opposed to saying, you don't have anything for me. I'm going to go over here and get this new job and have to learn a whole new culture and a whole new way of doing work and you know all the things that go along with the career transition. That's a really fantastic part of the program. Michelle, thanks for saying that. And it's making me think of a few different things. I, I do think there's this phenomenon that once you experience a leadership development program, you're initially incredibly motivated. You go back to your organization and you feel inspired. And then in time, you've returned to an organization that's entrenched in the way that they've always done things. And it can actually lead to, I think, a real drop-off of motivation. And like you said, ultimately, it might lead to people leaving their organization. One of the things that we are really trying to focus on with our newest cohort is embedding what I think of as like a train-the-trainer model. So not only are the fellows experiencing this fellowship program that's exposing them to these new skills, increased capacity, increased knowledge, but we're kind of zooming out and helping them to see how they can then take that, all that stuff, those new frameworks, the new mindsets, the new skills, the new knowledge, how can they take it back to their organization and share it so it creates a ripple effect. The other thing that this is bringing up for me is is some other findings from our evaluation, and that's around commitment to serving long-term in the Jewish sector. The people coming into our program 
were pretty committed already to serving in the Jewish sector. And we saw a bump. The other thing we saw was like really wonderful, positive shifts in leadership in all different areas, including vision and thought leadership, confidence, management, vulnerability, risk-taking, communication skills, all these different areas that are so important for people to feel success in their role and to lead organizations. So those are some additional findings from our initial evaluation that makes us feel excited about continuing this program and seeing where it goes and how it's going to impact not only these fellows as individuals, but also their organizations and the sector at large. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. In my conversation with Gali Cooks, we talked a lot about the sophomore slump that after you mm-hmm. know, like you're starting a job, you're starting with so much excitement and, and energy and you know all this stuff. And then you learn the politics and you can't really get things done. And there's a lot of bureaucracy and the culture. And that after that year, you know, people are not as engaged in their work and either kind of just slug along or stick it out and do excel year after year, the satisfaction in the work that they do. So it does yeah. seem like the, the model that you have of an organization needing to nominate somebody in their organization, you need the organization to be saying, we are open to what this person will bring back to us. Because I can only imagine someone going through this amazing program, having this great coach, learning so much about themselves, having all these tools, making a plan, right? Then going back to the organization, doing this stretch project, and then going right back to the responsibilities they had before, or doing the stretch project and their lay leadership be like, meh, like, I think we're good. You know, obviously that kind of deflates somebody in this work that they're doing. So you really do need to have an organization that's open and already understands that that's what they're getting in this nomination process and that they have to allow for the space for that and allow for the space for this person they've nominated to grow for four or five, six more years in that organization, that it doesn't just end with that one stretch project, that you have to continue to develop them because they have that capacity, they have that learning, they have that understanding, and they've done the work, right? It's, it feels not, obviously not a master's program, but it feels very master's programming, but it's a lot of work. It's a lot of time. It's a commitment. And you come out different on the other end than when you came into it. And that requires an organization that's open to those changes. Absolutely. And we try to be really intentional about that by during the acceptance phase of the process, we ask the fellows to get their supervisor, whoever that is, that might be the CEO, or if they're the CEO, that might be their board chair. We ask them to get their supervisor's buy-in. And then we communicate with those supervisors throughout the course of the fellowship program. So they know what's happening at gatherings. They know what is happening in terms of the CLDP process or organizational change initiative process. We really want them to feel fully invested in this experience because that's what's going to set the fellow up and set the organization up for the most success. So any other last things that have come up with you specifically about the work that you do with this fellowship? I think we'll just end where I started. And that is just what I've learned about the importance of starting with the human being. With these fellowships or leadership development programs, we often start with the professional in mind or start with the leader in mind. But we go much, much deeper. Our first gathering is focused on leading self because we believe that if a leader doesn't know what's getting in their way from fully maximizing their leadership potential or if they're not armed with strategies, to 
be their best as a person, as a human being, then they're not going to be an effective leader. So that kind of sits at the heart of our program. And I think it's so, so important. We focus a lot on the emotional intelligence side of things. So we do this activity at our first gathering where we ask every fellow to think of three leaders who they see as exceptional. And then we ask them on an individual post-it to write down what is the quality that makes this leader exceptional. And we have three areas on a wall. One area is IQ, one area is technical skills, and one area is emotional intelligence. And inevitably, you know, I've done this dozens of times with different leaders. Inevitably, the area of the wall that has emotional intelligence is full. Mm-hmm. of self-awareness, vulnerable, knows how to manage the emotions of others. All of these different things that some people, I think, minimize as soft skills, which in fact make a leader exceptional. And that's where we start. That's where our program starts. And I think that's why our program is so impactful. I'm not sure if you guys use this emotional intelligence 2.0. Uh, We don't use that book specifically, but our fellows have the opportunity through their CLDP to tap all different types of resources. So that's certainly one that some of our fellows may be using. My advice is for people to go get that book and and take that test if you really want to think about a little more objectively your emotional intelligence and the areas in which you have strength and maybe the areas in which you need improvement. When we're thinking about the audience, people who are listening, you know, people who supervise other people, people who are supervised or who are looking for ways to move up or ways to understand more about who they are as a leader. What's your advice to professionals in the Jewish community? I think it all starts with getting really honest, candid feedback to know how you are perceived by others. So whether there's a formal 360 evaluation process in your organization, which many there are not, but it could be as simple as asking your colleagues or asking your supervisor, asking the people you manage, what are my three greatest strengths in order for me to become a better leader? What should I do less of? What should I do more of? What should I stop doing altogether? So I think it really starts with getting feedback so you understand where the gap is between how you see yourself showing up as a leader and how other people see you showing up. The self-awareness piece is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you don't have it, even though you might have the technical skills, right, to do your job, if you're perceived in the colleagues you work with as, you know, you do something all the time that annoys everybody, but nobody's telling you that (laughs) it annoys everybody. We've all been exposed to leaders throughout our careers that may have, you know, an Ivy League education and lots and lots of technical skills, but they're not aware of their own emotions. They're not able to manage their own emotions. They're not able to read other people's emotions. And ultimately, they're not able to build positive organizational culture, build strong teams and inspire people toward a common vision. So it's really, really important. What I always tell people when they're seeking feedback and getting feedback is sit with what feels good and hold lightly what doesn't. You know, we're all on a learning path here and self-development is a lifelong process. Absolutely. That's fantastic advice. So Abby, things that you're talking about really make me think a lot about we're both women in the Jewish communal field. 
you know, trying to be leaders in our own right in the particular things we've chosen to take on. How do you see that reflected not only in sort of the fellows you work with, but your own career path and how you see women leaders in today's Jewish community? Yeah, great question. And I've been thinking a lot about this. You know, women account for 20% of staff at the senior vice president level and 20% of roles that lead to C-suite. Now that's in the broader working world. But if you look down at the Jewish sector, we have a lot of work to do. I never considered myself when I was young a feminist. I was always very egalitarian. Oh, why do I have to separate things? Like men and women, like it's together. And then I reached a certain point in my career where I was like, oh, I get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see now. And it, you know, especially in job hunting, it was very, very apparent to me, especially for executive positions, when somebody was looking for a man. And when that was a priority, whether spoken or unspoken, I spoke a little bit with Dara from DRG about this, you know, the male sort of female dynamic, especially in executive positions. So it definitely was something that became more prominent for me in my life as I continued my career and really acknowledged, wow, this is a bias that whether people know about it or not. Absolutely. So 75% of people who are working in Jewish nonprofits are women and only 12 to 14% of them are leaders. So we have a lot of work to do. And I think historically, this conversation has been focused on, you know, sexual harassment, but it's actually a conversation that goes far beyond sexual harassment around gender bias and implicit bias, like bias that people are, biases that people have that they don't even know that they have. Or women, you know, several years ago, I think the Atlantic um, published an article called The Confidence Gap that really resonated with me. And it was focused on the fact that like, Men might go for a role if they don't have all of the skills that they're looking for, but women only go for a role if they think that they have 100% of the skills that they're seeking. So we are both being held back and in some cases, holding ourselves back. And I feel like part of my work doing leadership development in the Jewish sector is certainly focusing on Jewish professionals of all genders and all backgrounds. And I feel a really great sense of urgency in zeroing in on the women's leadership opportunity and figuring out how we can address this together. That's great. And do you feel like the cohorts that you're getting, are they generally younger, unmarried or newly married and childless professionals? Or do you get a good mixture of people who do have a lot of other priorities or balancing along with this fellowship? We definitely have folks who are all over the map. So we have a small handful of fellows who are pretty early on in their trajectory, but the vast majority of our fellows are in that space where they have very, very full lives. Whether that includes children or not, it varies. We have some fellows who are really working hard to balance. I don't like the word balance because it's like, I think it's impossible, (laughs) Um, but to figure out a way to both have a full professional life and have a full personal life and manage a family. And we try to take all of that into account when we're building the program. That's why the customization aspect of the program is so important because we have fellows who can't go to a week to do an executive education program, but they can absolutely do some online learning at night. So we really try to honor who these people are, again, as professionals and as human beings. That's great. That's great. So any advice specific for our women leaders out there about the challenges they may or may not face in their career? I think it's so important to 
acknowledge those challenges. I think perhaps there's been a tendency to not give voice to them because it seems like you're kvetching about it or not overcoming those challenges. And I think it's really important to voice those challenges are real. And as women, I think we need to like lock arms and support each other and challenge each other and create change together. Absolutely. My last and final question for you, uh, how do you do it? How do you stay grounded? How do you get everything done and <laughs> and still have time for you and your friends and your family and, and feel purposeful and successful in your work? I'm glad you asked that because I want to start a movement and maybe this podcast will help me do that. Um, several years ago, I banned the B word and I'll say it on the show. So you all know what I'm talking about, but I banned the word busy. And I think that our culture has made busy a badge of honor. And I think it's actually doing us a real disservice. Since doing that several years ago, my life has not become less busy. In fact, it has become more so. I have a full-time job. I'm a yoga teacher on the side. I got my leadership coaching certification. I have two very young, very active boys, three years old and one-year-old. And I just refuse to fall into that. I think the New York Times several years ago did a story called The Busy Trap. I refuse to fall into that busy trap. I make self-care a really important priority in my life. It's like the oxygen mask on a plane. I know if I'm not taking care of myself, I can't take care of my kids or my friends or the fellows in the program. So self-care is really, really important to me. I try to make time to go running and to do my yoga practice spend time with friends. The other thing that I'll share is a practice that I started several years ago with a close friend of mine who also works in the Jewish community actually here at the foundation. And we have a gratitude practice. We started, I think about five years ago now. And every night we text each other three things that we're grateful for. And we started this during a time when we were both kind of what we call like taking on this mindset of scarcity, like what's not working in our life, what's not going well. And sending each other these three things every night, it's a very simple thing. And I have about five years of text messages to prove it, but it can have a really profound effect and really help people transition from mindset of scarcity to this mindset of abundance. Like our lives are full and we are incredibly fortunate to have all that we do. And sometimes we forget that. So those are the things that I really prioritize self-care, banning busy, and (laughs) trying to remember to express gratitude. That's fantastic. So everybody go out and find their gratitude buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Daily gratitude practice. I was on a flight once and there was a woman with, I think she had five kids with her and the flight attendant comes up to her and is like, oh, it seems like you've really got your hands full. And her response was better full than empty. Uh, Wow. Yeah. I think that's just a really great way to think about all the things that we choose to have in our life, right? You choose to have a career, you choose to fill it with the various things that you do. And instead of it being a negative, you know, I'm just busy and everything's crazy, really being able to think of it as my life is full of a lot of amazing blessings. That's a fantastic practice you've created. Definitely great advice and lesson for, for lots of other professionals. 
I'll just end on this note. Um, There's this reading that I love and I won't do it justice, so I won't try to quote it, but it ends by saying, remember that you are still a human being, not just a human doing. And I think that's just a really important thing to keep in mind in this day and age when our heads are usually down in our phones. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Abby, thank you so much for your insights and for talking about the fellowship and the work you do at the Schusterman Foundation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been fun. The Schusterman Fellowship seems like a really fantastic program for any professional who is lucky enough to go through that journey. When I look at a program like this, I think about what elements there are. There's deep and meaningful feedback from a number of different sources, mentorship and coaching, growth experiences that are outside of the organization, and then identifying which areas of growth there might be available within their organization. The elements of this program help us to think about ways that we can bring these things into our organizations. Not everyone can be a Schusterman Fellow. So for those who aren't, how do we bring mentorship, growth, feedback, focus on one of these four elements and find ways that you can help your talent continue to grow? One thing that really stuck with me after my conversation with Abby was her describing of banning the B word. Since our conversation been very acutely aware of when I actually use this word. And I've started to notice a difference that it is something that's a default. So I'm going to join her on that mission and ban the word busy. Maybe pleasantly active is a good way of describing it. It's a pretty negative term for how we're living our lives. So thank you for that, Abby. If you're an executive or volunteer leader, look at your staff and think who might benefit from participating in a fellowship like this one and nominate them. If you're someone who wants this kind of training, bring up the idea of participation and see what happens. It's a fantastic fellowship, and I hope you learn a little bit more about it through Abby and I's conversation. One quick note I wanted to share was our seventh guest, Drew Kugler, has just come out with a series of videos called Constructive Candor Videos that I think would be both really great to watch on your own and possibly to watch with your team if you find something in there helpful. The website to find that is Drew Kugler, K-U-G-L-E-R.com slash videos. And you can find it in his blog on our website as well. And last but not least, this wouldn't be possible without the generosity of TimelessKatuba.com and their partnership in helping make this podcast great. Thank you for putting beautiful artwork in the world that helps us celebrate love and togetherness. TimelessKatuba.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This is It's Who You Know, the podcast. Have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at itswhoyouknowthepodcast.com or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that others can find us. It's Who You Know, the podcast.